Hello, and welcome back to Language Teaching. I'm your host, Dr. Eleni Tirisarri, and today we're going to be talking about literacy and Bordeaux's sociological theory. This peer-reviewed journal article was published by uh, Vicki Carrington and Alan Luke in 1997, and it was published in the journal Language and Education. In this article, the authors explore how social interaction impacts literacy. Bordeaux's sociological theory has its main tenets in argue, the argument of several forms of capital. You have economic capital, which has all the financial and tangible assets. You have cultural capital, which is the knowledge, taste, and c cultural dispositions uh, an individual has. And also, um, the two other ones are social capital, which comes in the form of family, networking, and relationships. And so the symbolic capital would be in the form of qualification, honors, and reputation and esteem. And you might ask yourself, how do these capitals influence our access towards literacy, right? Or, or our ability to have literacy, possess literacy. Well, art manners, behaviorisms, language, social interaction, culture influence who we are. And they also change as we move in and out of different fields. How the person is shaped from birth is something that's not concrete, but it is tangible. And so... This idea, right, of our manners, behaviorism, and, and such, as I mentioned before, this Berdu called the habitus. And you might think, well, what is literacy? Well, primarily, literacy is a social construct. It's different for each habitus. And it depends on who holds the power in said habitus. It's usually tied to economics and power relationships. Um, so in the author's review of literature, they start by, by creating a critique of folk theories of literacy. Um, they talk a little bit about John Ogbu, who is an anthropologist who studied um, minorities and They don't go really too deep into it, but basically he, his main body of work explored how voluntary minorities, meaning people who choose to come to the U.S., um, do not have opposing or defiant um, dynamics with the dominant culture. Whereas involuntary minorities, which are communities that have been um, brought to the U.S. or have already been in the U.S. but have been decimated to small numbers converting them into minorities, like the case of Native Americans, um, also the case of African Americans. And so these involuntary minorities have the argument of Agbu, right, is that they have some sort of defiant uh, power struggle or power dynamics with the society at power or with the, or, or with the people in power. And you might think, well, how, how does that 
affect literacy? Well, uh, one of the the research that John Ogbu did was actually in Washington, D.C. with high school students, African-American high school students who were afraid of succeeding academically because they didn't want to be perceived as acting white. And while this certainly deviates from the main argument of the paper, it's important to understand where Ogbu's uh, stance comes from. And it's basically tr trying to explain or explore the different types of literacies that permeate within society. And so one of the main critiques that the authors um, have or explain, right, related to um, these folk theories is that while they seem like common sense and are accepted as facts, they are not based on actual literature, right? They're somehow misleading. Um, that's, that does, that's not a critique towards the work of John Ogbu, but a critique towards the the misconception or the or the perception Ogbu's participants had related to literacy. And so after critiquing right this these um, folk theories of literacy, the paper goes towards analyzing the sociological implications of particular literacy practices without reliance upon folk theories and myths, right? And then they go into explaining social literacies. And it's basically a number of literacies that coexist in any social space. And that can be from formal schooling areas like classrooms to other institutions, to even to subcultures. And so if there are these number of literacies, um, there really, and there is a lack in models so that we can't predict these effects, we need a vocabulary, an operationalized vocabulary to describe the sociological effects of literacies. And going back to defining social literacies, um, Barton and Cook Gumpres in the late 80s, mid 90s, um, they conducted a lot of literacy studies. And these studies suggested that literacy is a social construct. And we might now think of it as a matter of factly, well, duh, it's social because it involves two or more people. But prior to this research, um, they thought that literacy fell within psychological models. So not that it was a social construct, but a psychological one. And so those models, those psychological models, viewed literacy purely as a cognitive activity that had no connection whatsoever with the political context of social relationships. And if we connect this back to our readings about um, 
seminal theoretical concepts of, of bilingualism, right? This kind of aligns with Cummings' idea of Bix versus Kelp, right? A, that there's somehow a cognitively more demanding academic language versus a basic social uh, communication, right? And so what this places... Uh, or at least the the problem that this that this presents is that these skills and the approaches right the skills oriented approaches that are used then to promote literacy and to promote cognitive academic language um, is made with a presumption that literacy is taught in schools. And that the principle and focal literacy which students would require and use throughout their lives. And so up until the late 80s, there was this idea of one type of literacy and that it was a unified, universal set of skills, right? And with Hamilton, Barton, and Evanik in 1994 and with the previous um, authors that I had mentioned, that Instead, um, these authors instead propose that there are any number of literacies that could coexist within different social spaces, right? And, and this is very interesting, right? Because ethnographic research actually evidences this cross-cultural um, literacies and, and all these rich and, and different types of discourse that are equ equally rigorous, that are equally um, challenging and are, and are equally rich, but in very distinct and different ways. And so that poses a problem, um, particularly in curriculum design and, and for us as teachers, because we have no way of predicting with any consistency um, what literacy practices our students are well-versed in. And we also can't predict which types of discourses our students will need in their subsequent life trajectories. And while I certainly understand where Carrington and Luke are coming from, um, I think it's very important to also um, acknowledge that we live in a fast capitalist society uh, with trickle-down economic system. You know, we could, we could really get into, into a really heated discussion about economic policy and how um, literacy is, is tied to that um, capitalist um, economic system, right? But that's a deviation completely from the topic of the paper. But I think it's very important to understand that given the economic model that we have um, in our society, specifically in Puerto Rico, um, that while we have a, a socialized idea of how government should work, um, that everyone puts in a pot their their um, each city puts in a pot and then it's distributed uh, amongst the, the whole island. Um, the, 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 the 
people's economy, right, is very capitalist. And, and this idea of a one-size-fits-all literacy might fit uh, uh, with this idea of, of a unifying um, literacy that prepares students for the capitalist, the fast capitalist e economic society that we live in. But what ethnographic research has showed us is that there are, there's a plethora of literacies that, not, that are not necessarily represented in mainstream society. And while I can certainly um, come up with, out of the top of my head, several examples and cases, right, of like first generation mi migrants in the U.S., uh, African-American vernacular, um, even Native, uh, Native Americans, um, I can think of all, those, of all those instances in the U.S. of how this unifying um, literacy could be problematic. However, here in Puerto Rico, it's equally um, problematic because you're going to have students, for example, from a, 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 mar a more marginalized community have a very different repertoire and a very different um, discourse, right, than, say, uh, a student from a, a private school, an elite private school um, in the metropolitan area. And so when you're thinking of accessibility of higher education or 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 of social mobility it's going to be a very difficult for that marginalized student to be able to acquire a specific capital because they just don't have that quote unquote literacy that the student from the elite school in the elite private school in Puerto Rico will have And so in terms of college readiness, you're going to have a student that's going to be able to perform uh, better in standardized testings like the SAT, the ACT, uh, and even if we're in talking in Spanish, the college board. And so that sets up a student to fail and another student to succeed. And while that might be framed within a capitalist um economic model, right? That poses a problem for us as language teachers because not only are we working with their with the child's uh, affective filter, not only are we working with any inert biases that the language learner might have, but we're also stacking the discourse on top of all those already um, cards that are stacked against the student. And, and how can we as teachers um, kind of bring some sort of equality or, or some sort of level playing field in this kind of economy of practice? And Bordeaux defines uh, economy of practice as immaterial forms of exchange, which in addition to, to direct currency, right, are sources of social power and control, right? And we already talked about this at the beginning, economic, cultural, symbolic um, uh, capitals. And these transactions of practice, they occur, they develop and they occur in different types of 
social um, relationships, right? Um, school institutions is one space where these transactions happen. Family, community structures, corporation, businesses, government departments, agencies, uh, community organizations, and traditional intellectual disciplines all form fields through which individuals can, can pass as they play out individual life trajectories. And this idea of capital is one of Bordeaux's um, seminal contributions to our understanding of literacy, right? Because we can see literacy now as a cultural capital and, and we can then um, form different institutions or different um, programs, different initiatives to promote early literacy education. And so if we see literacy as cultural capital, then linguistic practices become embodied capital that the student or the language learner has. And that includes knowledge, skills, dispositions, and even representational resources of those linguistic practices. And this embodied cultural capital can make a difference for individuals or groups, but it's contingent on a huge number of variables, right? So the first thing would be the availability of other forms of economic and social capital. So for example, if the student has enough material resources and the actual access to social institutions that can promote or can foster said linguistic practice that we that we um, described as this cultural in, embodied um, capital, right? And also the laws of conversion and exchange in particular social and discursive fields. So this would mean that the student's capital is relevant to the demands of the systems of exchange. So in layman's term, it's basically that if the student can communicate in the discourse of the, the people in power. Also, there's this institutional, there needs to be this institutional recognition of the value of the student's various capitals combined, right? And so it's not only if the student is able to communicate within that register and which in, within that reg that discourse, but also what is that student bringing to the table that would benefit the whole? And this brings us to question, right? Um, what are the educational implications in, in all of this? Well, Bordeaux's sociological model enables us to rethink the importance of literacy in a student's life trajectory, not just in the student's academic um, area, right? And it also allows us to question um, these folk theories. And honestly, just being able to have the vocabulary and the operationalized terms to, to just be able to debate and critique the sociological contexts and the power dynamics at play 
that affect our students' uh, literacy. And just like our um, political context needs a system of checks and balances, um, so does our education system, and so does so do our ideas on literacy and how literacy works, right? Um, we need to be able to reappraise and critique the range and complexity of these social fields in which our students are constantly negotiating their identities. And the local inter relationships, right, between all these cultural, economic, social, and symbolic capitals specific to the student's context. And the main takeaway that the authors provide for this paper is that one of the central lessons for educators is that there is no single literacy that can be taught with simple equivalent value in cultural capital. Rather, there are multiple literacies taught and learned in community and schools. These literacies will combine uh, with other forms of capital, offer differing local payoffs for students. And so that's what I have for this week um, related to the Carrington and Luke paper. Um, those are my thoughts, and I think that, that this paper has a lot of value in terms of operationalizing terms and, and providing adequate vocabulary to discuss, right, um, the, the historical um, adventure that we're going to be going on uh, that is teaching English in Puerto Rico. And one thing that, that I think that really needs to be, the point needs to be made across is that There is no one single literacy that permeates in the world, much less in Puerto Rico. And so in terms of, of language learning, right? And so that's why it's very important to understand the different types of capitals and the different types of powers at play that either help students succeed or fail in acquiring or learning um English in Puerto Rico specifically. So um, with that, I'll see you next week. So stay safe, wear a mask, and see you soon. <laughs>